Keeping Your Joy, The Heartfelt Theology of an Isolated Prisoner. Paul writing from a prison in Rome. Christians, church at Philippi. That title, Keeping Your Joy, I mean, I've said it just about every week. It, 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 you wonder, why would anybody give up joy? Everybody wants joy. So it, it seems like a bit of a no-brainer, keeping joy. Who doesn't want it? The thrust behind the teaching is joy isn't always found where we think it's going to be found. And looking for joy in the wrong place just leads to frustration and emptiness and despair. So keeping your joy. Last Sunday morning, we started on the text, Philippians 3, 17 to 21. I hope you can open or start your Bible up here and at home. And we started a study on enemies of the cross of Christ. There were four points. We did two last week. I'm going to do two more this morning. Enemies of the cross of Christ. So let's look at this text together. Philippians 3, 17 to 21. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For for. Many. That seems to be such an important word. Let me change colors there. Many of whom I have, he said, often told you. And now tell you even with tears. They, they walk as enemies, not enemies of Christ, enemies of the cross of Christ. It's a little different. Their end is destruction. Here's this list. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now here's the contrast. But our citizenship is in heaven. Their minds are set on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Let's just pray. We're grateful for your word and we're grateful for the way this text ends with your power able to subject everything to your authority, your plan, and your rule, that there is nothing that will be left incomplete of all your intention for a new creation. There's so much in these verses. We don't want to miss what your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts. And so guide and direct, guide and direct on both sides of the pulpit and those listening online. I just pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll accomplish your will in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We considered the first two of four points from this text last Sunday morning. Just real quickly, the first point was we are to mark people who are good examples of what it means to count all things lost for the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we took that idea from the 17th verse. If you look at that, Join in imitating me. Imitate me. 
and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So deep spiritual realities aren't best learned just on paper or in a text. They certainly start there. But they're more incredibly beautified when they're fleshed out in another life. This is, this is the reason for the corporate nature of the church. Christianity is a corporate faith. It's more than just academic learning. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. We need to be together. I've had people, they say to me, you know, I've just, and I know we're in a pandemic and you do the best you can. I get it. But I'm not talking about now. I'm talking about going back years. I've had people say, you know what? I don't go to church, but I do church just, I watch this program and I watch that program. And, and I would say to them, that's not church. That's, that's Christian news. That's observing something. But you need to be with people where you see that fleshed out in lives. That was the first point. The second point we studied was this, that a great indicator of the nature of your heart's treasure is what makes you weep. And we got that from the 18th verse. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So, so this kind of blessed weeping, it reveals not just what you believe intellectually, but it reveals what you value most deeply, what touches your heart most deeply. Mark the things that break your spirit-indwelled heart, the things that make you weep. So follow the example. Look for examples. Forsake everything else. Find somebody who is attached passionately to Christ and fix your attention on those people. Watch the things that make you weep, that break your heart. And now, so point number three this morning, we'll do three and four. Notice Paul's remarks about these enemies of Christ's cross. You see it in 18 and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. So there's the weeping part that we just talked about. They walk as, as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Of all the verses in Philippians, you know, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Of all the verses in Philippians, these, I'm sure, don't get posted on many bulletin boards or tagged on many smartphones as favorite verses in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, 18 and 19. But, but they're important. We need to study them. Before, before we get into the analysis, we need to return to the question, who are these people? Who are these enemies of the cross of Christ? There are things we know that the text says. There are things we don't know. The text just doesn't say. For starters, I already pointed out, just take note that these people are enemies. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. They're not enemies of Christ. 
They're not enemies of the golden rule. They're not enemies of the Sermon on the Mount. They like the concept of forgiving your enemies, loving one another. But Paul's concern seems to be they're enemies of the cross of Christ. He, he wants the Philippian Christians to follow his example and those who understand his heart. We looked at that in verse 17. So, so his main point seems to be that these these Philippian believers are not to be inclined to follow the example of these enemies of the cross of Christ. T to see what makes people enemies of the cross, we need to establish first maybe what is the path of the cross of Christ. What does that look like? And Paul has already told us that. So we have some clues here. Following following through embracing the cross of Christ means stuff like this. Philippians 2, 3 to 8. Paul's talking about his, his own life here. Do nothing, from, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. In, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So this is what it means now to embrace the cross. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have, have this mind. This is what the cross, this is the kind of change the cross makes when you truly embrace the cross of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. Wow did not count, you're going to see that word again in a minute, remember it, okay, just remember that word. He did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of sinful man, being found in human form, he, he humbled himself, that's it again, He's, that's said twice now. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is the path of the cross. It's, it's not just about receiving forgiveness. It is that, but it's not just that. In fact, I'd like you to notice something strange. In all of that text that we just read, there's not a single word about the forgiveness of sins as Paul writes about the cross. Did you notice that? Strange especially for Paul. No, he's stressing the shape, the shape a life takes after experiencing the cleansing, forgiving, atoning, working power of the cross of Christ. He says, have this mind, verse 5. When you embrace the cross, receive the cross, it, it, it affects your mind. It doesn't just cleanse your heart. It changes your thinking. Specifically, in that example, here's what it changes. Encountering the cross of Christ forever demolishes the way you view your own rights in this world. Until that change happens, I have not experienced the cross of Christ. I just sing about it, talk about it, but it hasn't reached my mind. Have this mind in you.
have this continuous way of seeing yourselves. You, you, move, you move yourself down the list of your priorities. You use more of your time, your energy, your strength, your money for Christ than for self. To make it clear, this wasn't just Jesus' experience on the cross. He didn't count equality. I said, remember that word? Jesus didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. But he wants to be clear, this isn't just, this isn't just the attitude Jesus had, but it was to be shared by everyone, by all. And so Paul tells how the cross of Christ changed his whole approach to life. He gets very personal. For me... For me to live is Christ. Paul says, for me to live isn't Paul. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, this means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, die, go to be with Christ, remain, minister, carry on work. Which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. You can see it again. Let me just show you quickly one more time. We're talking now about the way the cross shapes our thinking. In Jesus, he did not count equality with God something to be great. Laid down all of his rights. In all of us, have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. In Paul... Look at this text, Philippians 3, 7 to 9. I'm trying to show you this is the pattern of the cross. This is what the cross is about. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Remember I said to remember this word? Remember? In Jesus, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. didn't count it, reckoning it. Now Paul talks about himself. For his, I count everything else as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God which depends on faith. So we've seen that word twice count. Paul says, this is the way, this is the way Paul counts the moments the pursuits. This is the way he sorts out life. You know what a, a conscious process counting is? I can still remember can still remember when we were kids in days when kids would just go outside and you could play outside until it got dark and then you knew you had to come home. And I can remember with, with all the boys in the neighborhood, you get playing hide and seek or something else. Remember counting. Remember this? You, get in the, you, you had to go and stand somewhere and you put your hands over your eyes and you go one steamboat, two steamboat, three steamboats, four steamboats. And you have to count. You make yourself count in a certain way. This is, this is Paul's way of saying that this 
Christ-shaped mind, it can't just be generally accepted or generally admired. You can't just estimate. You can't just casually ballpark following Christ. Yes, I went to camp. I think it was 1967. Got saved. Praise God. It's not that. This was very specific for Paul. I count everything else as rubbish. I I number the things. I think about each thing and say, no, not that. No, not that. No, not that. That's rubbish. And And he processed that on a continuous basis. This is how he measured the meaning and the direction of his life. Not only that, this is what Paul looked for in his fellow workers. Look what he says about Timothy in Philippians 2, 19 to 22. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Look at this. They all seek their own interests and and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. So, it's important to remember that Paul marshals all these examples. They're not just biographical tidbits, but he's trying to show these people in Philippi, he's trying to show, here is how people live post-conversion. Here is how the cross affects the mind. Here is how people are changed upon receiving grace and forgiveness. This is how the cross of Christ remakes people who come to it. So far, so good. Now maybe we're getting into a better position to postulate just who these enemies of the cross of Christ were. I mean, at least we have some clues. Think of it this way. Paul rarely, if ever, wept over false teachers in the New Testament. I mean, he wept over the damage false teachers did to the church. But to put it bluntly, Paul usually got very angry with false teachers. They upset Paul. Further, it's, I think it's significant that Paul says nothing about these enemies of the cross of Christ. He doesn't say a thing about their teaching. He does about their character. When Paul talks about false teachers, Galatians and different, he usually exposes where the false teaching is, the error in the teaching. But here he doesn't. He doesn't analyze their teaching. He just talks about their life. We'll look at that in a minute. Contrast that, his anger at false teachers. Paul did weep when he saw people drifting from Christ. He did weep when he saw people growing spiritually cold and dead. It's just a guess. No one should be dogmatic. My guess is that that's the case with these enemies of the cross of Christ. They weren't enemies of Christ. 
They probably loved a lot of Christ's teaching. They surely loved his miracles and his parables and his forgiveness. What they resisted was this cross-shaped life. They were probably people who once followed Christ, probably still professed him, but resisted being shaped by the cross when it cut across the life of self and pride and their rights. So they were, they were really misrepresenting what the cross of Christ establishes as a pattern for living. You can see it. I said he talks about their character. It's in the 19th verse where he says... Uh, <laughs> Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. They have minds set on earthly things. So simply put, they are all, they're all self. There's no, they might have liked forgiveness, but there's no daily dying here. All of these phrases, we'll look at them. They're carefully chosen to, to mark the appearance of the opposite of a cross-shaped life. That's what Paul does. These traits all mark the opposite of a cross-shaped life. Let's start with the last phrase, okay, and work back to the first. Let's do it that way. He says, he says they have minds set on earthly things. Put, put, the, put the hit on that word set, their minds are set on earthly things. I mean, everybody thinks about earthly things to some extent. You have to, to live in this world. These people are set on earthly things. They are, they are bound. They live for earthly things. There's nothing else. In terms of their joy, they're consumers. They're purchasers. Period. Life is about what they can see, what they can touch, what they can sense, and it's about right now. They live for the moment. They live for their own rights. Touch their rights and they bleed. Perhaps the simplest way to, to understand these people is, is to contrast them with, with Paul's own mindset. Look at these three verses. I just clumped them onto one slide. 121. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. 3.7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 3.14. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in Jesus Christ. That's all he's thinking about in all those texts. Paul says, these enemies of the cross of Christ, they don't, they don't get this at all. They don't get it. They've abandoned it. These enemies of the cross of Christ have forgotten the target of life. They're wrongly oriented. They're, they're, like, they're like hogs who see nothing but the trough in front of them and nothing else. Here's the next phrase. He says, uh, they glory in their shame. That's a hard phrase. I mean, glory, glory is what they delight in. Shame 
is how they should perceive what they're delighting in. But they don't. So in other words, their, their tastes are all backwards. They're, they're trying to secure their lives in empty things. They should feel shame, but they don't. So these people, it's not just that they're wicked, it's that they're immune to repentance. They don't, they don't see the distortion of living for self. Because everyone around them lives for self. That's the same with you. And so it's very hard for them to feel ashamed of this anti-cross lifestyle. They glory in what they should be ashamed of. So it's not just wickedness. It's pride in wickedness. It's, it's justified wickedness. He says next, he says, their God is their belly. Wow. He's not talking about their weight here. He's talking about people who profess loyalty, at least a certain kind of allegiance to Christ. They're involved in their religion. They attach some importance to the things of faith, but they're ruled by the filling of their own desires. with Christ, in church, trying to get all the traction they can in a limited sense, and it's not working because they're still tuned in largely to their own desires. Their God is their belly. Everybody has a belly. Everybody has desires. But their God Their lives were shaped by inclination rather than Christ. Their lives are shaped by culture rather than Christ. Most of their thoughts, most of their ambitions, most of their resources, and most of their time ran in the direction of catering to self. Then he says, lastly, the last phrase, he says, uh, their, end, their end is destruction. I think that's a pretty carefully chosen phrase, you know. I mean, these people, they've, they've taken their eyes, obviously, off the heavenly prize. Their lives are lived on a different track. All those phrases that we've been looking at. They've set their hearts on a different goal, a different end. They have deleted something central to the call of Christ. Look at, look at 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you, that's us, that for the, sake, for the sake of Christ, this isn't just any kind of suffering. That's really important. This isn't the arthritis or the migraines. This is suffering specifically from following Christ. Your, your friends will reject you. you your, your girlfriend won't date you anymore. The culture will mock you. You won't fit in with the rest of the class at university. See, suffering for the sake of Christ. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, this isn't hard, but that you should suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. Here's the conflict Paul had. He was preaching Christ he wouldn't stop, and they threw him in prison. Paul said, there, you're engaged in the very same thing. 
The same conflict. Suffering for Christ. Suffering for not being budged from your number one priority in life. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I, I still have. And so Paul, because Paul is concerned, the Christians at Philippi, they might be tempted along the same lines. I mean, because they might grow weary with the cost of choosing Christ when it brings opposition. Do your kids know that that's coming? Have you, have you talked to them about that? Because they might grow weary with the cost of choosing Christ when it brings opposition, self-denial, even persecution, he reminds them that those who deny that cost for an easier, apparently smoother, more rewarding road right now, he says they have no future. They're paying an eternal price for cultural ease. And so these, we're almost done, these Philippian Christians are to, are to walk in the example of Paul 17. And the reason he tells them to do that is there are many, verse 18, there are many who regardless of their Christian talk, they're going to start making adaptations. They'll take the Christian faith and they'll, they'll progress it a little bit. Tweak it. It'll blend in a little better. It'll be a smoother ride. And, and Paul says, you keep your eye on me because many are going to go a different route. Many are going to go a different route. They'll talk the talk, but the walk will be different. Christians can come to think that this phony Christianity is normal. That's the great danger Paul has in mind. I try, uh, I try in my reading to read as many biographies as I can hopefully from different centuries, too, of passionate Christians in maybe long-gone eras. I mean, they just seem so wonderfully weird and passionate and, and vivid against the bland, self-absorbed culture in which we live. And then I wonder, I just start to wonder if maybe these biographies, maybe these are the normal Christians. Maybe the great saints only look great because we're comparing them with us. Maybe, maybe we're the ones who have moved. Watch passionate Christians. Watch out for indulgent Christians. And that leads to Paul's closing comments. Point number four. Only those who pay the price of the cross have the citizenship of heaven. This is important. I see it in 20 and 21. After talking about these enemies of the cross of Christ, our, our citizenship, it's quite a permanent thing. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, and then I love this, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So as Paul ponders the future of these enemies of the cross of Christ, 19, he says their end, here's where they're going. 
their end is destruction. He's moved to consider the opposite end of those who do count all things lost for knowing Christ. He says their citizenship is in heaven. So, so whatever they face now, suffering for Christ, the, the opposition, the ridicule, the sacrifice, the rejection, the persecution, their end, their end is, is wonderful and, and certain. There are times, true enough, when it doesn't look like the way of the cross is wonderful. And there are certainly times when it doesn't feel wonderful. You're engaged, Paul says, in the same conflict that I'm engaged in. That's what, that, that's what you have. It's been granted to you to suffer for Christ. It's a gift. There, it's a present. There are times when it doesn't feel wonderful. And that's where Paul's closing words in this chapter stand so firm. Who, who will... Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body? How is he going to do all this? By the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So, whatever current threats arise, and they will arise, whatever price must be paid for faith, and the cost is only going to mount as the years roll by. Buckle up. This says there is. Don't forget, church, there is nothing that is going to successfully stand against our Lord and his coming and a brand new creation. He is able to subject, subdue the old King James. He's able to take all of this and bring it absolutely all under his rule and under his control. And, and so you target that. You target that as you live your life now. Is it hard or is it easy to embrace the cross of Christ? Oh, it's easy if you just want to say, praise God, I'm forgiven. Got my get-out-of-jail-free card. But if you want your mind shaped by the cross of Christ, that self-denial, that humbling, that counting, Jesus uses it, Paul uses it, counting your rights as nothing compared to the glory of following Christ. If you want to do that, well, it is challenging. But it's joyful. You remember these words from Jesus? The kingdom of heaven is like, it's like that. Treasure hidden in a field. When a man found and covered up, then there's the important phrase. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. Wasn't it, what does it cost to follow Christ? It's free. It's grace. What does it cost? Everything. Everything. Sells all that he has in his joy. And he buys that field. Make sure the mind of Christ. Make sure the mind of Christ. Isn't just something that makes you say praise God I'm forgiven. It's true. It's gloriously true. But make sure you have it in your head. 
that is to shape the way you think about everything else in life. Let's pray. We want to keep our joy. It's easy to give it away with, with false delights and false securities. Teach us to count everything lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Every one of us. Every one of us is naturally turned inward. And that's death dealing to us. And so in all things, let us count Christ greatest of all and count brothers and sisters greater than ourselves. For the glory set before us, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.